and welcome to yet another episode of the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm Randy. <laughs> I am Mike. And we are, I guess, here. And you're here with us, so welcome. Uh, yes. Yeah, we are Dicemen. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Yeah, we're, we're back to that. So... We are doing a podcast on International Podcast Day, so hey, that's a thing. Yeah, and I'm on schedule for once. Well, so yeah, <laughs> we're right here with How you. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, so a lot of things happening right now. Um, so yeah, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. You remember that back in the '80s? I mean, uh, hate it, like it. I okay, I hated it, but uh, wasn't for me. So not really bitter about anything. Nothing to be angry about. Didn't hurt me. Well, 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 what about it? Are, are they doing something to it? Well, yeah, the Dungeons Dragons cartoon, they finally did a, uh, released a fan-made uh, ending to it all. It's called Requiem. And, uh, oh, so, okay. So that, all right. So there, there's been some, uh, uh, they took the old stock footage and uh, used that to manufacture a fan-made... I'm not entirely sure the exacting process. I know they had one of the voice actors come in. Wow. I know that they use a lot of stuff uh, from the original guy who did Avengers voice. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you really like the cartoon, uh, you'll probably love it. And uh, if you didn't like the cartoon, but you were just aware of it, then, you know, it's worth a watch. And if you hated it and you ever watched it, you're probably not going to care. So, we'll, we'll just... You know, far be it for me to criticize other people's tastes. Like, uh, some people came into the hobby a little younger. Right. And, I mean, I honestly, I, I don't think you should be hard on yourself, dude. Both of us were past a certain Right, it point. wasn't in our wheelhouse anymore. Yeah, I I was already past the, the threshold for properly enjoying that. So I, I didn't like it either, but I never really begrudged people for enjoying it. So, no. What a wonderful thing fans do have made. How yeah. awesome is that? Yeah, I just saw it, I caught it yesterday, and uh, I sat down and watched it, and uh, yeah, it was pretty good. I thought, All right. You know, it. it I do think that uh, it deserved an ending, so I think that was well written. Oh, uh, or well, well deserved. Played. I don't know about well written. Well, and the new one, materials. D and D Fifth Edition has had a uh, release. For a you know campaign setting slash module, uh, the what was it? Uh, Rhyme of the, oh, the Frost, Frost Maiden. Maiden. Yep. Uh, yep. With you know they're now doing a thing where they they issue two covers, like the the base stock version mm-hmm. and then the attractive version, at no difference in price. Yep. Uh, you know no difference at all in price. So it's exact same material. You know like you're not shortchanging yourself of anything, or you're not overpaying for one or the other. I, I like the attractive versions that they've been putting out. Uh, with yeah, I like that there's not a price increase. So. Yeah, I'm real keen on that, which is you, you you can pick the style you prefer, whether it's the traditional familiar cover type or for your elite spot on the bookshelf, you can have the really attractive covers at no extra charge. Yeah. Um, Love it. You know, the only... Uh, Downside of that is, well, let's not. Hopefully, they don't take it too much farther and make it like uh, the variant covers back in the comic book days. No, no, I, I, I like that they have provided an alternative. However, uh, I should very much prefer that they not go crazy with the variant covers like we see in the comic world, where it's like thirty-two separate variant covers, and this one is like two hundred ninety-nine dollars. Man, you know, no, no. Well, they, no. I don't think they ever really cost that much more. I I'm just think kidding. that. I, the the cost was uh, passed mainly to comic shop owners. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to get all the variant covers because obviously, you know, collector guy would show up and uh, they'd want all the variant. They'd require one of each of these, and each one is to be sealed hermetically by a hermetic mage. Oh, have you read it? Oh, what are you talking about? You don't read these things. You just keep them hermetically sealed. These are not for the being subjected to the rigors of air. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. It, it probably makes uh, collectors, serious collectors, cringe. Uh, but I was a kid. Who, oh, well, I never it. saved or protected a comic when I was a kid. I, I read them all and I loved them all, every single one. That's how you fell and in I'm love not, with comics. Is yeah, you by read reading them. them. Yeah, you read them. Uh, 
the enthusiasm, the wonder, all of that came from having an experience with the reading materials. So, yeah. So yeah, I've been uh, looking at some of the stuff about uh, *Rime of the Frost Maiden*. It's uh, been oh, bravo! Yeah, so it looks some pretty good. Uh, in addition to some of the other things uh, out there in the wild. But yeah, if you uh, go on YouTube, you can look up uh, Dungeons and Dragons animated series Requiem. No. And it'll uh, take you right there. Well, with regard to the International Day of the Podcast, uh, I, I had not realized that there was such a thing. I confess, I, I didn't know. Well, who knows nowadays? Yeah. Oh, and there the Thunder God greets us with another peal of thunder. Yep, another giant being slapped around up in yep. Jotunheim. Oh. <laughs> no, uh, I gotta say congratulations to the world of the podcast sphere and to all of our friends uh, who are podcasters. Indeed. Uh, congrats to all of us. I mean, what a wonderful thing to be a part of. I think it's a terrific community. We're doffing the imaginary cap in your direction. For all you who make podcasts and create content for others to enjoy and listen to. Yeah, the kimono is carefully belted uh, and the hat is tipped. So, <laughs> What the what? The kimono? Uh, why did I bring the kimono into it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to, I really, now that I actually think about it, I don't want an answer, but, you know, you're welcome to. Well, it's not a really short kimono. Uh, so, I mean, you know, if I bow a little when I tip my hat, it's not going to show anything more or less, uh, you know. No. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it goes with the same that I'm wearing pants. Well, okay, great. Um, well, we're all appreciative. And thank now, goodness for that. Now we have to question when you weren't. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, we do have a call in from our last episode. Yes, so. we do. Jason has graced us once again with his pleasant voice and attitude and demeanor to give us some thoughts on our last podcast about mounts, animal companions, and familiars. So take it away, Jason. Hey guys, Jason here. Really enjoyed your animal companion episode. I want to offer my condolences for Fritz. As much as I am tempted to say a line from Ralph Baskey's Wizards, I will refrain out of respect. But yeah, um... Losing pets always tough, but great episode. Some great points. We shouldn't nerf them just to nerf them, but if they don't care for their pets and companions, they get what they deserve, right? So, look forward to your next episode. Um, if you're really hurting for ideas, I'll I'll throw you some, but I have faith in you. So we'll see what you come up with next, and and we'll go from there. So hang in there, take care. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks a lot, Jason. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for the condolences, man. Uh, the Fritz is much mm. missed in these parts. Uh, a little stinker. Uh, he was a great familiar. <laughs> yeah. uh, enhanced my vision and hearing. Uh, <laughs> and that extra couple of hit points didn't hurt either. No. <laughs> Explain your sour stomach there, though. <laughs> you know, you uh, share the same conditions and debilitations as your familiar experiences and. Yeah. Vice versa or versa vice? I kept needing my bedroll for like half an hour before I could make myself settle down. Making so, biscuits. So that's over. You know, Working the biscuits. Uh, that's done with. Uh, and, you know, I, I probably won't be coughing up any more hairballs. Yeah. So. <laughs> Depends on who you've been licking, I suppose. And in mid-fireball. That's your own business. Um, <laughs> no, we're glad you enjoyed the episode. And, yeah, maybe we drove the point home once again a little too harshly we i guess we like to walk back over what we just covered on if nothing else it gets it drives it home that uh, if you're going to have animal companions in there you should give them their idea uh oh the trouble phone you should give them their due and consideration in the campaign more than just stat blocks and uh damage sponges or explorers of the unknown or things that the main player characters won't uh throw themselves into much like henchmen. They have kind of a responsibility and obligation that puts you and your players into, or you, the player, into a considerable role of a caretaker, as well as just a, a person who gets a lot of advantages from a few different characters and associates. So, um, as far as running out of ideas, well, well, it may look like that when you start covering uh, mounts, familiars, and animal companions. It is not uh, so here at the Dicey Screen Podcast. We like to think of ourselves as a fertile ground for many 
obscure and oddball and controversial subjects, although... Yeah, this one was less about controversy and more about a facet of everyday gameplay. Yeah, I don't think we were, we've were we been really controversial other than just in our attitudes. No, sometimes not even then either. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, certainly there have been a few topics where, you know, it, it touches on things that for whatever reason are hot button issues for some folks. Mm-hmm. Not so much for me unless we, uh, you know, unless we nudge into the fourth edition discussion again. Yeah, yeah, we try to stay clear I, of things. I, I, that... Or what happened to the ending of the uh, Warhammer fantasy campaign, you know, uh, Power Behind the Throne. Uh, mm. you know, yeah, the last installment. I'm still bitter over that one. Yeah. But, if, but yeah, there, there aren't that many things that uh, I, I actually get really riled for. Oh, the, in the Satanic Panic episode, I, I did have a... There were some aspects of people's conduct at that time that did seriously tick me off. Things that I, I got, you know, pointedly upset about. Yeah, I get uh, a little upset about uh, gatekeeping. I think that's... Yeah, yeah, mean-spiritedness, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. There's a lot of people you know, I don't agree with actors. their play, play styles, but I think everybody should have that. Uh, maybe we should do an, uh, an episode where we have an airing of the grievances. We should just sit here and vent our spleens and get angry over oh, nothing. Yeah, what honks you off in gaming, yeah. Yeah, although I think that's uh, how some of these uh, hate... Or the click- Sheboygan thing. Man, yeah, that still sh- chaps my butt. I know, that whole Sheboygan thing. <laughs> I've never really been able to make peace with it, and I never think I will, but that's fine. The Sheboygan thing. We won't talk about the Sheboygan thing. <laughs> well, yeah, but we could be like that the... That one's for you, Jolly Blackburn. <laughs> we could be like the hate uh, grifters who uh, farm the clicks on... Ten controversial things you should be upset about that you didn't know. Ah. Yeah. Those guys, yeah, I, not my style. I don't think I, I that way. It may be generate some money, but that's yeah. I'm not a you know. <laughs> let's mine for outrage today, in the dwarven outrage mines. You know, ah, uh, no, no, I'll pass. <laughs> oh no, we. I, I think we have lighter-hearted and happier topics. Yeah, I like to be happy when talking about gaming because, as the world crumbles around me, I like to be talking about gaming. So, all right. Well, with that, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We have a new advertisement, so this is a little charity thing. So give it a listen, and we'll be right back after the break. With Topic. All right, and we're back, so we're back with some Topic. Yeah, the surface of this Topic is fluid. Oh. It's a very fluid Topic. Nice tie-in. Yeah. Yeah, it's about nautical adventuring. uh, Specifically about piracy and high seas adventuring. Now, this is going to be a more micro-examination of specifically uh, above the ocean, you know, above the surface, actual uh, nautical campaigning, as opposed to what we had covered on aquatic undersea. Yeah, aquatic, uh, mostly undersea, although we will touch a little bit on it. Um, oh, certainly. I mean, there's there are a opportunities. Certain uh, there's a lot going on with a naval or nautical campaign. I'll, get away from naval, from a nautical campaign. And whether you're playing pirates, privateers, or a mercantile-style campaign, there's a lot of things that uh, have to be done. So first off, we're going to just talk about some of the challenges. Now, when you decide to do a nautical campaign, you need to make right away uh, some choices. Now, do the players have a ship, or will they find a ship? They find a ship, and this is what the players want to do. This can be a great breakaway, especially in a sandbox campaign where players decide all of a sudden they want to do this. Now, the problem with players just suddenly finding a ship or coming in possession of one is it puts a lot into the DM's lap. Uh, Yeah, there are responsibilities that come along with this that go way beyond the ordinary. Uh, For starters, right out of the gate, uh, when the players engage in a campaign that is distinctly set principally afloat, uh, you're losing a lot of the familiar trappings of land-based adventures. In, in Now, you'll still have your opportunities for city adventures as they go to port to port, but uh, the Forest travel and... Yeah, familiar roads. Now, this doesn't mean that there won't be many an island with an opportunity for adventure, 
but you have to immediately re-gear and retool. They're just the, right. the common monsters that you expect to make use of start to drop out of usefulness, and you have to rebuild. Yeah. Well, like Sahaugan, they're just like sea orcs, right? Yeah, no. uh, you know, not quite, but close, close enough. Right, know? well, there's a lot of nuisance. There's uh, Koalinth and Marrow, as well as Lacedons and other familiar types of nasties like ghouls, hobgoblins, and Grindylows, the little goblin uh, <laughs> octopi guys in uh, Pathfinder. There's a lot of creatures that can fill in for those roles. But primarily, one of the things you're missing is exactly right. You don't have any uh, main roadmaps. As a matter of fact, a lot of DMs starting a nautical campaign just simply figure, well, it's just all ocean, right? Well, uh, I, I'm not going to try to get too technical here, but yes, there's a lot of there's actually terrain in ocean. But one of the things on a long sea voyage that I personally experience is that it is very isolating. You feel alone, even on a large warship like I was on and stationed aboard. There's a lot of just looking out, and yes, you see the familiar uh, escort ships and uh, supply ships coming to and fro. But when you're alone out there, and I mean, when you look to the horizon, there's just nothing day after day. Well, day. And, yeah, and I mean, you've had the experience of being in a modern sea lane yeah, where and, there is traffic. Now, you know, in the ancient world, uh, you know, hugging the coastline, you would see traffic. But you go deep ocean. Yeah, and we were and we were right in the middle of it. Westpac was not a uh, small operation, but nonetheless, that isolation. Now, even in that, uh, we were in the deep ocean. But as you get close to the coastal sides, there's besides islands and atolls, there's also reefs, there's also cross streams and uh, confluences of tides and shifting areas, uh, especially stormy seas tend to gather around, uh, as we've just seen with the hurricane season around here, in uh, especially you in the southwest, or southeast, excuse me, know very well. Uh, that is a very tumultuous time, and, you know, ships would steer us clear of that. So there's, there you have a variety of sea terrain. Now, yes, it's all, it's all water, right? And yes, but... Yeah, but, I mean, they're, uh, look at the Aegean, you know, the... Yeah. Uh, that area is just filled. Uh, the Mediterranean is full of ancient wrecks uh, because, you know, from area to area, the conditions were somewhat different. Uh, the, you know... Yeah, and we have the conveniences of, of modern radar and uh, long-range patrol craft that can suss out uh, enemies and uh, obstacles long before they come to term with a vessel. Now, in the old days, with just... You, the only thing you had was the power of sail, in which would, the wind could be eternally harvested. So <laughs> where do you go with that? And so the players say, well, wherever we want. And then the DM is forced to create these areas. And so that's the challenge Like you have to come up with. So that makes preparation time key for you. Yeah, not all campaigns provide a generous amount of explanation about what kind of things are out there to be discovered. If you're sandboxing it and homebrewing, uh, you've just signed on for a lot of work. And I'm not suggesting that people shy away from it. I'm, I'm actually suggesting that people go ahead and accept it, be ready for it. Yeah, and one of the things you're going to have to have, as Mike said, you're going to have to have a very good idea of where coastal towns, islands, and nations are influencing these areas. Because they're going to become crucial, especially because while you, have, you can ride the wind on the surface... Or even magically uh, propelled craft or whatever. But you still have to depend on that. And the other thing is you have to feed people. I was about to say that, uh, you know, if you were to ask what the real lifeblood of a ship is, any ship, uh, ancient world or modern, it would be money. Which means commercial centers, uh, supplies, uh, the ability to make, undertake and maintain you know, uh, mm -hmm. undertake repairs and maintain uh, to, you know, feed and clothe uh, and occasionally heal uh, an entire crew uh, to hire people with specific skill sets, uh, money. So commerce is going to be essential in what you said about cities uh, and ports and, you know, places to go and things to do. That is the essential component. Right. Now, you uh, there can will have always your... be. Uh, an enormous need to get to the next place. Yeah. And I 
I hesitate to use this comparison, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is Firefly for the ancient world. We got a ship. We got a job. We got just enough money to get by. Wow, all know? I need is a ship and a star to steer her. All right, yeah, and oh, okay, so, you know, you are right. The comparison goes back and forth and forth and back. I mean, the Mariners of old had the same kind of wanderlust. You know, what's beyond the horizon? And that's just it. You can use the uh, uh, wandering monster tables and uh, hex, what each hex contains as you explore it and let the PCs just go where they will. And that's fine, just as long as you keep track of that and then begin to develop a place and uh, ports. But more importantly, more than any other, and we this ties into some of our past, uh, recent past episodes about NPCs, a ship does not run itself, and while warships that I was on are not suitable for long voyages, they just are not. Oh, well, they, they mean, are compartmentalized, right? They're they have to be constantly resupplied. So back in the old days, warships mostly stayed near close to port or uh, went along with well escorted with supply trains for long voyages. Now, as we talk about the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean, we. Sp- we speak specifically about very close island nations that were only, at most, just a few weeks apart. So it wasn't very hard, but you could run out of, uh, to travel long, but you could run out of fresh water and supplies very quickly if you went off course or were blown off course suddenly. Now, this brings us to the point of since we discussed what the sea is, the sea is a very tumultuous place, as you can hear around us. It's oh, raining. well, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the Great Lakes of Michigan also have their share yes, of shipwrecks uh, littering the, the coasts, uh, and in some cases, the deep waters. Uh, and the, <laughs> the lighthouses of Michigan are also uh, fairly famous as having been you know, like essential components in Great Lakes trade because they are basically, the Great Lakes are freshwater oceans. Uh, they are... Small, well, they, they outrank small some... compared to the Atlantic, but big compared to some other seas. There are a few seas that they actually combine out uh, rank. Yeah. In volume. And uh, although they just take a little bit to go across, they can suddenly and surprisingly turn vicious and unpredictable at a moment's notice. Uh, yeah. So, but getting back to the NPCs, um, you're going to need a crew. So when the player characters decide, hey, we've got a ship, yeah, they can might... If they have the proper backgrounds and skills and training, they might be able to make a go of it for a while. But with a smaller ship, perhaps. Yeah, a small. Uh, but uh, there are certain ships that uh, once you're of a sufficient size for relatively involved commerce and or exploration, uh, you've already moved past the point that half a dozen player characters could possibly manage. You're already into the area of they're going to need a crew. So they're going to have to get a crew, and that means you'd have to generate NPCs. Now, some player characters, uh, or some players, can actually help you. They will gladly generate characters. But uh, again, take a careful look at them and make sure that uh, they fit to the NPC rules and guidelines that you have in place in your campaign. Because although there are many advantages to having an expert crew, uh, they often, if they're too powerful or well off on their own, they would already be running their own ship. So you want to keep player characters the stars of the show, but you also have to want them to rely on these other characters carefully and principally certain things like the sailmaster or the quartermaster, as well as just general hands on deck to do the basic work of day-to-day of uh, doing the rigging, uh, maintaining the basic functions of the ship, as well as, well, the often... The scapegoat of many of the sailor, the cook. Oh, well, all right, that too. You know, uh, the point being that a crew is not just a collection of, like, zero-level fighters that you get for free. Uh, What you're dealing with are people who are a professional class of, uh, you know, sea traveler. And their principal job is focused on the ship. Uh, Not letting them be some kind of super disposable asset to the party is like a good line to draw right out of the gate. Like, okay, these aren't just guys you hurl into danger. Uh, You've actually got to carefully protect these people because they are essential to your long-term well-being and your ability to go from place to place. And if you get a reputation for being callous with the lives of that crew, you will soon find yourself woefully understaffed. 
Yeah, and we'll touch on mutiny in just a minute, but there's a lot of aids online and all over through various gaming books. Uh, most uh, good NPC guides and manuals have a lot of pre-made characters that you can assign personality traits to. And so giving a colorful background or small quirks to several characters, like uh, for in my Skull and Shackles campaign, I have a dwarf uh, culker. Oh, he's the... Uh, uh yeah, he puts the yep, uh, repairing the ship, and uh, Which so was done with uh, lead, uh, tar, uh, rope. Oh wait, he uses lead. Yep, oh, that was wow. also used. Yeah, they cocked up the seams of lead because very it didn't heavy. Mm, well, yes, very sturdy for heavy planks. Small things like uh, tar and others, yes. But so having uh, Don Clayfist, the bald, tattooed dwarf culker of the vessel. As just an, rather than just nameless NPC number 332, helps uh, the players attach and have a certain awareness of that character. So when you bring up the name and describe them, they're ready to use and they know who they're expecting. Sometimes, you know, always, you know, chewing tobacco rather than smoking. I like uh, keeping three by five index mm -hmm. cards handy that's a, yep. for those. You know, that's an ancient trick from the old ways you speak of. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, do not cite the old ways to we, to me, which I was there when the old magic was written. Yeah. No, uh old DM habit, three by five index cards, uh highlighting minor personalities and making side notes about their quirks. So that you got their stats handy just in case. Things happen sometimes, like half your crew is killed when the ship is, you're like, you know, beached, washed ashore in a storm, and, you know, you've got to decide who you've got left. Uh, and then see if you guys can build something to, uh... uh yeah, make those fortitude constitution saves. Yeah. you survive that storm. Um, but yeah, the other way is that the players decide to not pay them or treat them irresponsibly... We have our next favorite thing, which is rather than revolt, mutiny it is. <laughs> mutiny on the HMS Bounty. <laughs> ah, yeah, you do not want to be Captain Bly in such a scenario. Uh, but it does happen. Player characters may, not out of malice, uh, but out of like a desire to kind of hurry through that part, uh, they may neglect... To take any time, you're like, ah, I don't want to know who our crew is. Uh, the fact that they don't care is uh, an opportunity for DMs to make that a facet of gameplay. That, you know, if it's well understood, they're like, oh, God, I hate these guys. Why are we stuck with the crew? You know, um, I always want stuff like money and food. I don't understand. Why don't they just, they should be happy hanging around guys like us. Uh, it's great to go exploring. And it, it's great to go traveling. But if there's no profit in it, uh, and, you know, nobody's ever had anything but a base wage for the longest period of time, I, that Especially can be a little Especially while the uh, players are sporting all that bling. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you traveled all the way across the ocean on short rations and, uh, you know, found the deserted isle with where the X marks the spot and you crawl down in the dungeon and you come out hauling tons of swag, uh, the people who just spent... You're like 40 days at sea to get there. Might be viewing a little askance. Um. <laughs> yep, and so that's one thing that also has to be taken. If, if all the PCs are off the boat, uh, who says that negotiations can't break down while they're you're like way out to shore? <laughs> Bye! Where's our ship? Oh, somebody stole our ship. No, they didn't steal the ship. Well, I mean, yeah, technically the crew stole the ship, but, uh, yeah. They'll let you back on it after a pay raise. <laughs> yeah, they're out. Well, we have to see. Good luck getting them. Uh, wow, the wizard teleports there by himself. Okay, great idea. Do you know where they are? <laughs> I have a teleportation circle in my cabin. All right. All right. You're by yourself, and a couple of those guys are well-armed. Okay. So now they have one of the player characters hostage. And now negotiations begin. <laughs> now negotiations begin in earnest. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, now you have a lot of NPCs to deal with. Now we've already covered the uh, coastlines and monsters come up pretty much uh, regularly in any campaign. So you're going to need a lot of monsters. And specifically, or fortunately, 
for ocean going encounters is lots of uh, counter tables from oh, old first yeah. edition even the uh, white box had ocean encounters and there are online references that have cataloged these traditions. Yeah, you know, as the games moved on, first, there's a... second, third, fourth, fifth edition. They're all out there. Uh, holy know. cow! You said fourth, and you didn't punch something. Well, you know, hey, the night is still young. <laughs> Let's not rule anything out. Let's not be hasty. I'm not putting it off the table. No. Uh, point being that all editions, uh, this material is out there online. Uh, highly recommend using it. Our and books. Yeah, <laughs> better still to have the old original volumes, but a variety of encounter tables, uh, both for shallow coastal waters, mm -hmm. uh, for mid-depth waters, and for way out in the distant reaches of the ocean deep. Uh, things that, you know, actually... Crawl, slither, and creep. Yeah, the, the mighty kraken does not likely make its way close to shore, mm -hmm. but... Uh, but a lot of other things, on the other hand, you're not going to encounter Lacedon ghouls uh, way out in, like deep. Yeah, sea. you're more likely to encounter some Morkos coming up at night and some other nasty, nasty Salgan probably. The, and if you have them, deep ones. But anyway, they <laughs> should always be pretty rare in my book. But uh, that's another topic. Anyhow, the main part is is that, as Mike also said earlier when we were talking about this, is having rivals now you're if you're playing a pirate campaign you're also going to have to create a lot of prey for the pirates yeah this is back to the commerce section whether you're pirates or buccaneers or privateers in some kind of conflict uh there has to be an economic scenario there there has to be regular sea lanes uh various places to go and you know places to buy and sell things uh those places become focal points for trade. And what are those people trading in? What are those ships full of? And who wants to take it? Yeah, and here's where you start to get into politics. If your players are pirates, they're not going to be welcome in many places, especially places of civilization and where law and order are prized. <laughs> yeah, they will not be welcome at all. As a matter of fact, that's probably the end of the player characters. Watch the series Black Sails. Just saying. Now, if, if they're privateers... They get the benefit of having to be pirates, but they can only prey on specific enemies. And as well, they're expected to obey a code of conduct. Oh, yeah. You do not simply uh, ruthlessly murder the entire occupants of, of a particular merchant vessel just because they had the flag of an enemy nation. No. You may capture all their goods, but you are expected that if they surrender... Uh, they're allowed to live. They've got enough food and water to make it to where they're going, but they've forfeited, uh, you know, any of their uh, actual uh, merchandise. Right. It's all taken from them. And buccaneers, kind of the same way, although buccaneers are a little looser. They threw together for various missions or mercantiles, and especially uh, operations where they protected others. Not impossible. Um, um, they think could, of it as mercenaries of the sea. Yeah, it's a little bit more open with kind of an expectation that you might do some piracy, but you're not going to... That's not your reason diatra. Yeah, it, like, if you have... Well, and if you leave aside the uh, murderous inclinations of true pirates, the, the buccaneer or corsair types might be viewed a little more favorably because they too, even though they're not sworn to a particular nation... Follow the kind of ethos of, like, ah, all right, you've surrendered. Uh, you know. Yeah, they also have allegiance to a flag or cause, so that gives them. So yeah, now something. You've, you've developed uh, a map of the area, or at least an idea of where the campaign will take place, and populated with islands. And now you have to come with your rivals, which now starts to be more than just now, people you meet along the way. Remember that rivals is not the same. As direct opponents, uh, it is also, you know, entirely different from monsters. Now, rivals can mean something as simple as uh, a mercantile faction that has it out for you because you work for a nation that they are at odds with, or uh, you happen to sell to a, a faction that they do not approve of. Uh, a rival could also simply be a competitor looking for... Mm you know, to supplant you in terms of uh, the areas that you 
well, I mean, if you're a pirate or a buccaneer, you prey on a certain region, uh, you know, you, you're looking to enhance your image and to develop good contract, you know, good contacts in those places where your ship is welcomed. There were other people bucking for that lofty position. Uh, you know, those, those favorable terms uh, and those those best positions coming into port and the best prices for goods. Other people will want those things. It is a constant state of competition. So your rivals may not necessarily be people that you can just fight and kill. Uh, there may be various rules of the road that the players have to observe also, and that means outsmarting your rivals without committing open murder. Uh, and that, that can be really fun for a DM to put people on the spot. Yeah, and you know I, what? Sometimes it's fun just to skunk the player characters and leave them going, Oh, I hate that guy. Yeah, and uh, in a piracy campaign, you just go and kill him. Yeah, I mean, it, in, you know... Ah, I hate that guy? Well, yeah, I'm going to go kill totally kill that guy. I'm going to kill him twice. As a matter of fact, I'm probably going to kill him three times, just to be sure. <laughs> All right, well, you go kill him. Oh, well, and... Uh, Again, fascinatingly, uh, a truth of piracy is that it was not, in many cases, as uh, disorganized as people imagine. No. There were very, very specific codes of conduct. Uh, it was a remarkably democratic society in the ancient world. Uh, brutal in its administration of its rules, but weirdly democratic at the same time. Yeah, like any criminal organization, it works really well only when everybody obeys the laws. And if you don't obey the laws or the rules set forward, you're going to get killed. Yeah, it's a society of lawbreakers. So uh, you can imagine what it takes to frighten them into relative cohesive action. Uh, bear that in mind for piratical campaigns. Yeah, and the, also pirates the penalties expect for breaking contract or for taking an action that was completely unauthorized and prohibited is pretty much generally death. Yep, all grudges are left ashore. Uh, you so know. pirates, even though they were a bunch of thieves and sometimes murderers, they rarely stole from each other or murdered one another, except on shore, because on a ship, if you lose too many people... You're, you're not, all hosed. Yeah, you're not coming home. <laughs> so that sort of thing. So that's something to keep in mind as well, yeah. Um, I think uh, those are some big challenges that not everybody takes into account when they start a nautical campaign. And as we touched on before, we touched on the undersea element, which also, in a fantastical campaign, especially uh, your fantasy games where there are intelligent Creatures with kingdoms underneath the seas, like sea elves and the tritons and merfolk. Yeah, this is where your on-the-sea campaign intersects with your under-the-sea campaign. You can have uh, many dealings with them, and while they're able to get along with surface dwellers, they are initially mistrustful because most surface dwellers don't really think of the undersea as anything other than a resource to be used, fishing and over-harvesting. Some thir certain ecological issues that uh, we deal with Oh well, in our I mean, real life, far more have, advanced in yeah, this age than in the industrial age. World. But they also reach there that overfishing with nets can decimate a merfolk tribe, and they may be upset. So once again, here's an opportunity for adventure. Players may have to intervene. Yeah, and it provides an opportunity for you to introduce the undersea. Yeah, uh, in the process of brokering something. I mean, very much in the tradition of the the uh, secrets of Salt Marsh. Yeah, uh, very much in the tradition of that, the, the player characters may wind up brokering peace between multiple races, uh, finding themselves not just as conquerors or slaughterers, uh, but as emissaries, as trade partners. So uh, there's a lot of wiggle room for the direction you want to take this, and I approve of all the different directions the right, person and that's... could go. When you when we started this out, we talked about all the obstacles that you have to have and all the preparation you have to do. This is where it starts to pay off, is that now you have a very active campaign where the players are have a traveling home that moves with them. They no longer have to worry about finding a camp spot. Yes, they have to find ports and places to weigh anchor, to go ashore and things of that nature, but they're fairly safe and well-contained and almost always together aboard their vessel. 
And this is the next part, probably the last one that a lot of DMs tend to overlook is the knowing your types of ships. Now, I'm not saying you have to like be able to know a brig from a caravel, but you have to have some knowledge of what ships are, be able to articulate and understand them. For instance, yeah. a galley, the relative size, uh, the general capacity for uh, materials that can be kept aboard, uh, and the number of people absolutely essential to manage it. Right. Uh, and that essential complement is never enough. There should always be extra personnel. Um. <laughs> yep, always taking on new hands. Usually inexperienced uh, people would be taken on as those extras. They would do a lot of the drudge work like cleaning the decks and uh, re-knotting ropes, learning a little bit of the skill as it went on to the ship life. That was their payment. They didn't get paid as much as a swab. But they did accrue experience and knowledge, which could then get them a share aboard the crew. Now, knowing the difference between a galley and a galleon is essential because a galley has principally oars. Uh, well, at that end, a galley is uh, much, very much more a ship of the ancient world. Right, and a, a galleon. galleon. Now, you have just moved hundreds of years yep. into the future. Uh, now, in a fantasy world, you can have them coexisting. Now, something uh, similar to the caravel uh, shows up at the dawn of the Renaissance era. Yeah. So, uh, the age of exploration, uh, you know, these were some of the early long-distance traveling uh, ships. So, caravels are not out of the realm of possibility no, in a standard D&D campaign. And, you know, everybody imagines these big uh, swashbuckling pirate movies with hundreds of cannons or dozens of cannons on a ship. Didn't happen very much because, to be honest, every cannon that was on there took away food and space. Yeah. And on long sea voyages, if you had, if you were just going a few hundred miles from shore and then returning, it'd be all right. But if you had to go long term, oh yeah, everything else gets second. Now back in those armadas, they had to have a lot of merchant or mercantile cargo vessels with them to carry all the provender and food that they would need to see them through their voyage. Yeah, because, because they couldn't carry it alone while they were packed to the roof with gunpowder and weapons. <laughs> Just you know, that was one of the conflicts they ran into: the limitations of space. Yeah, and the more cannons you have, you have more men you have to carry because each cannon took at least three to four men, at least. And again, as Mike said, there's always extras. Now there are uh, even more ancient vehicles, such as a cog or a cura, that yep. uh, are very simple, like single latin sail. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a dow, one, one triangular sail. That's all, and you that you could have just a handful of people working their way along the coast in a simple skiff, uh, or a larger fishing boat, or like a junk that didn't make deep voyages, but could yeah. make some travels if it was extra, uh, or if they made the provision before leaving port. Yeah, if the gap between uh, departure and destination was not too great, they could make the hop across uh, <coughs> yeah, some deep ocean in between islands, as long as it wasn't lengthy. I mean, if, they, if at most they were going to be you know out on the water uh, for a week or so, then not so bad. Yeah, but, you know, it's uh, there's yeah. a comparison I read a while ago that uh, only with uh, when they, they, the United States Navy came up with nuclear submarine program, they finally found out that, you know, here was a ship that could indefinitely stay underwater and uh, stay on station. It didn't need to return home for anything, maybe ammo. I mean, when it expended its torpedoes, of course, it would have to return back to port and restock. But its weakest link was now the crew. Yep, because there's only so much food they could store. Correct. Uh, and there's only just so long you can stay on a boat uh, before you simply go bat crap insane. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so yeah, ec ec incredibly long periods of time at sea can be deleterious. Well, yeah, the submariners are a special... Uh, special like, level of insane. Yeah, going in... Good on know. them. That's a crazy thing. That, but, you know, apparatus of Walsh, you know. <laughs> Merlin spoon and a uh, decanter of endless water. And, well, technically you can stay there for a while. Not long exactly life. a good life, but you'll wish you'd brought a salt lick. Yeah. No. Uh, but, yeah, the types of ships also limit the type of campaigning that you can do. Now, the players might start off with a smaller, less complicated vessel. 
uh, and then kind of earn their way up. Uh, but ideally, if your campaign is coastal and close to cities involves less deep water exploration, then yeah, you, you've got a wide variety of ancient world ships to choose from. Uh, the uh, triremes and... Mm-hmm. Um, oh... Uh, Briggs and Karak. The Quintareme. Quintareme, yep. The Quintareme. These varieties of ships uh, allow, if you do a little historical reading to, you know, figure out how much crew and how much, uh, you know, food and provender is needed for them and how much is capable of being stored. If you do the little background work, it'll pay off in describing it to your player characters. Uh, But obviously... uh, to the DM's ideal, you'll want the vessel that is best for, you know, all kinds of travel, up to and including deep ocean. So you can make it a process where the player characters earn their way to that lofty sphere of, you know, we have one of the best ships afloat and we can go anywhere we please. Now that, that is a goal to aim for. Right, and that's, that's what you want to do. And of course, many game manuals have already different types of ships available. Uh, there's a funny story from um, <clears throat> Sandy Peterson about why there was a ship of, on the third level of Greyhawk Dungeon, but we won't get into that. <laughs> it's because some guy, you know, uh, he had 10,000 gold pieces. He bought a Carrick. He didn't know what the hell a Carrick was. And, you know, when somebody told <laughs> him, like, you're carrying a... smoke to the Carrick. Well, he thought it was, you know, it's 10,000 gold pieces. What am I going to spend my gold on? And so the DM told him, like, you can't carry a Carrick. It's, it's a huge sailing vessel. And they're like, oh... So rather than, you know, just like you never bought that, he just let him. There's a Carrick, you know, you got her out of your pack, and for whatever reason, there's a Carrick laying there oh. in the middle of the dungeon. So <laughs> I, I do appreciate that one. But yeah, you know, the, knowing those terminologies helps a little bit. You don't have to be super uh, good on it, but you, that was back in the days when people just didn't know what a lot of these terms were, and they would throw them in there in these game manuals, and people were like, well, what the hell is that? You know? Well, uh, sure. You ran into a lot of people between the ages of 14 and 22. Yeah, who did. Who, I mean, you know, if, if they were growing up in Iowa, I mean, you know. Yeah. Who has a degree in, like, uh, you know, medieval sailing vessels? <laughs> I didn't. I, yeah, I learned almost nautica. all this out of D&D. Yeah, I had to learn it, but... Like the expert set. Likewise, the pole arm. (laughs) Well, in the expert set, we got introduced to sailing vessels. Yes. They they did. And in the advanced Dungeon Master's Guide, they gave a much more thorough explanation of various ships and naval combat. And that's the other last thing is that the other challenge is is because they're player characters, you're going to have to know how to fight other ships. And ship to ship combat. Yep. And it's a lot different than normal combat because you have all the player characters and their abilities in one small place, just ready to go. And vice versa. But the one thing that even though all the players are locked, cocked, and ready to rock, the other side is just the same. And you're only as safe as the ship you are sailing on. And if that is damaged, and that's a lot more vulnerable than most player characters, let me tell you. Oh, well, yeah. Look, uh, you know, the, the relative strength of the hull of a vessel decides the general well-being of everybody on board. It has nothing to do like. I've got an 18th level fighter on my ship. Yeah, but your hull has the same number of hit points as ours. How many rounds can you uh, breathe underwater? <laughs> That's what you're going to have to be asking yourself, especially in all that heavy armor. Yeah, yep. that, and that is how uh, the great equalizer of uh, the strength of ships applies. Yep. <laughs> so, all these challenges put before the DM... And the payoff is a campaign that is rich and flavorful and allows a different approach as well as having certain stories. Whether yeah. you have factions and nations involved, you also have rivals, lovers, and friends and allies that you have to help and aid as well. These create plenty of opportunities for advent- exciting adventure and also plenty of opportunities for players to do what they do best, which is go to the wrong place at the wrong time and screw things up. <laughs> I, I think you meant high adventure and glory. Oh, fantasy. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm okay, sorry. but, yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm going to let you have that one, though, because uh, yeah, those of us who have DM'd know that that is also Yeah, true. we start with that expectation. <laughs> we begin this with the best of intention. Oh, it's going to be glorious, full of high adventure and heroic daring do and great deeds to sing <laughs> of over many, many hoisted tankards and many spotted rum. <laughs> 
palaces. But yeah. five minutes later, five minutes later, we're you're you're attacking the patrol ship right out of port. Yeah, it's on the high seas, dude. We're out of port. Oh. All right. <laughs> what is the bard doing? For the love of Pete, that's a tuna. <laughs> <laughs> Could be a mermaid. You don't know. <laughs> don't judge me. <laughs> totally uh, judging. Yeah. So. Uh, that said, it is one of the great opportunities. It's, it's one of the great theaters of the mind. The ocean setting, uh, the, you know, coastal setting. These are opportunities uh, to take Brandon, players out of their comfort zone. You made a fine woman. You made a fine wife. But the first love of a sailor is the sea. And whether you dip your toe in it, fun. Or you're just uh, for a few games. Or you're taking on a full-scale nautical campaign. You know, the rewards are well worth the effort put in. So, well, I think we've uh, sailed quite a long time on that one. Tied away anchor. Arr, that she is. So, we hope you enjoyed our little time podcast. To scupper the mizzen mast and be careful not to step in the poop deck. That's right. Don't <laughs> step in the poop deck. You don't want to. <laughs> so, uh, it's International Podcast Day, so we hope you enjoyed our contribution to this. And also... Uh, you can hit that like button on, uh, or subscribe to us on the uh, Anchor or whatever it is, the podcast reader that you use. Gently tickle the subscribe yeah, button. Yeah, just gently tickle it. It's, it's just a little, it's Just on enough edge. to make it giggle like the, you know, Pillsbury Doughboy. You know, just. <laughs> and uh, that way you can get notified when we put out a new podcast. We come out once a week. So we'll be here doing more next week. In the meantime, you stay safe and sane out that crazy world of ours, and may, may the, the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.